Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I spoke to Holly Jane Buck, Assistant Professor of Environment and Sustainability at the University of Buffalo in Buffalo, New York, about her new book, Ending Fossil Fuels, Why Net Zero is Not Enough. We talk about the meaning of net zero, the different trajectories we might use to get there, and how these different paths might ease or exacerbate other ecological, social and political challenges the world faces today. Thanks so much to all of our patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, support us at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Holly Jean Buck on why net zero is not enough. Hello, Holly, and welcome to A World to Win. How are you doing today? Great, thank you. So we are here to discuss your latest book, and I want to open with the question you pose in the title of that book. Why is net zero not enough? Yeah, so there's a few problems with net zero. One is that there's net zero implies some amount of positive emissions that are balanced by some amount of negative emissions. So the idea is that we reduce as many emissions as we can, and then that there's these carbon removal schemes that can compensate for the rest. And so that became a thing because people realized that we were very late with mitigation and that we don't have the technologies to fully decarbonize some sectors just yet, which sounds reasonable, except there's no definition on what these hard to mitigate sectors or activities are. So, you know, you can claim that your activity is technically difficult to decarbonize. There's not really any rule about that. So you could end up with a version of net zero that still has quite a lot of emissions, and people are assuming that the negative emissions to compensate for that will just materialize. So that's one problem with net zero. The other big problem is that it's a way to avoid talking about the production of fossil fuels because it's entirely focused on emissions after combustion, not digging the stuff out of the ground. And so we know that we also have to wind down the production of fuels. It's not enough to just increase renewables. We have to actually stop producing them. So it kind of shifts the discussion away from production. What are the different trajectories that you can imagine towards net zero and which of those are kind of preferable and which of those are going to kind of exacerbate other issues? Yeah, so I think we need a version of net zero that specifies how many emissions are still allowable. And so there's a number of ways to think about doing that in, you know, with regards to what activities constitute an allowable emission with regards to who gets to produce them. I mean, the looming problem here is that people just say, well, my activity is too expensive to decarbonize and you end up having people you know, flying around in private jets, compensating that with carbon removals. But the amount of carbon we can remove from the atmosphere is finite. Like there's only so much carbon we'll be able to remove 
because of practical limitations on things like planting trees. There's only so much land for those new trees to be sucking up that carbon. There's also practical limitations on some of the industrial or geological approaches to removing carbon from the atmosphere. Um, in terms of having the energy to power these direct air capture machines, which are basically like giant fans that spin and suck the carbon out, and then it needs to be injected underground. Um, that needs to be powered by renewable energy, and we're going to need that renewable energy to be electrifying everything. So in terms of the best pathway for getting to a reasonable version of net zero, I think we need to talk about an amount of allowable emissions, which should be really low, something on the order of one to three gigatons of CO2. And so current emissions are about 40 gigatons of CO2, a bit more thinking about other greenhouse gases. Um, a gigaton is a billion tons. So that's like a lot going up there, right? Um, and a lot of the models for net zero, kind of the standard scenario is that there's going to be 10 gigatons left over and then 10 removed, which is just a crazy scale of negative emissions infrastructure. It would be like on the order of the existing fossil fuel industry and then some, but all for putting carbon back underground. So think about all the pipelines, all the injection wells, all the stuff that needs to be built. But we don't have to take that path. We can have a much more modest path where we have a smaller infrastructure for removing one or two gigatons if we're really serious about, you know, getting very close to zero instead of just giving all this stuff a pass and saying, okay, we're going to build this huge thing to compensate for it. Is there a world in which we can achieve that trajectory relying purely on kind of market mechanisms? No, I don't think so. Well, I mean, number one, market mechanisms aren't working so far, right? And I think we've had time to test this out. Um, we just don't have a viable price on carbon that's high enough in enough places. Um, and the, the other challenge is that, you know, putting carbon away, it's a huge cleanup operation. Companies are polluting for free. Even if you put a price on carbon, it would have to be really high to, um, incentivize building out this huge infrastructure, like, you know, between one and $200 a ton. I think we should do that. Um, but I don't think it's going to get us all the way to the scale that we need to be at. I mean, it's all, um, I, you know, completely agree with you about net zero not being enough, but we're still in the position where some companies and institutions aren't even getting to or even approaching or trying to approach net zero. So banks like HSBC are still financing coal and fossil fuel companies. We know that the kind of ESG ratings for these institutions don't take into account the fact that banks are financing these really dirty operations. Companies like Exxon have been really slow to decide that they want to make the move away from fossil fuels. So is it, you know, are we kind of like going too far by saying net zero is enough? Should we not be campaigning just saying decarbonize now to these, these institutions? What's the argument for really taking it further? I mean, I, I think net zero, <laughs> you know, I have uh, friends and colleagues that think that the whole concept of net zero is a scam and we should stop talking about it. I actually think there's a few good things about net zero. I mean, net zero is a reasonable starting place, I think. And I think that just because it's true that we don't have all the technology we need to fully decarbonize things like steel or 
agriculture. Also, a lot of the missions we're going to be dealing with are emissions from agriculture uh, as things go on and carbon removal can compensate for some of those. So, I mean, net zero, sure, you know, but we need to get more ambitious for a few different reasons. I think that phasing out fossil fuels, it's not just about um, climate change and emissions. It's also about public health. So we know that air pollution from fossil fuels, according to a recent study out of Harvard, you know, was estimated to cause 8.7 million deaths in 2018, right? There's a lot of public health and environmental justice impacts from fossil fuel production. That's one thing. The other thing about fossil fuels is I think that they suffocate innovation. I mean, we could have had a lot more of these clean technologies that that we've known how to do, you know, produce since the 70s. A lot more innovation in geothermal and biofuels. We could have got to solar quicker. I think there's a lot of things that could have been unleashed and fossil fuels are still a block on that. And fossil fuels are also tied up with oppression, corruption, perhaps also war and conflict. And I'm I'm not saying those relationships are simple. There's been a lot of good discussion within political science and other fields about how those relationships work. But I do think there are some real relationships there. And so the main reasons to end fossil fuels may not even rest on climate change. They may be about the forms of power that fossil fuels enable and the oppression and degradation that they're entangled with. So you know, beyond net zero, there's other stuff going on with the production. It feels like this idea of net zero actually fuels this kind of individualistic approach to decarbonisation, where we all think kind of, I've offset my emissions, you know, what about you? And, you know, you get like options when you're buying flights to like offset your emissions and plant a tree somewhere. Um, Whereas actually what we need is a much more kind of collective um, and social approach rather than this kind of, you know, this idea of like the carbon footprint, right, which was put out by the big oil companies. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this whole accounting framework is kind of a direct descendant of that. What about as well, we talked a bit about kind of, you know, the companies that are pretty far off net zero, but we're also seeing, you know, if we're saying we can't rely on the market um, to kind of encourage corporations to move away from fossil fuels themselves. What about states? Because there are a lot of like, especially state owned oil companies, a lot of state owned corporations now that are big emitters. How and, And a lot of these are kind of located in the global south. How can we encourage a reduction in emissions there without choking off options for development? That's a great question. Um, it's something that I begin to get into in this book, but don't fully explore it. I think just because it's been a, a gap in our focus. I mean, in our focus in terms of like climate professionals or the policy community, we need to be thinking about what individual roadmaps tailored to each country would look like for phase out and how the international community and especially donors like the United States with huge amounts of historical responsibility should be funding and supporting those. So I think that, you know, the thinking there um, has just been immature because people have been focused on emissions rather than production. Um, I think that one of the things about net zero is you could imagine a framework that allows a country like Mozambique or Uganda that has gas reserves that has been thinking about how to use those natural gas reserves as a lever for development while 
maybe there's a roadmap where they can develop those fossil fuels and a country like the United States can embark on carbon removal to compensate for the impact of those fossil fuels. And you have an agreement to do that over, you know, a period of decades. So I'm sure it sounds quite radical, but that's the kind of level of discussion we need to be having right now, thinking creatively about how to actualize net zero in ways that are fair and thinking especially about how to make sure that the last fossil fuels we use are fossil fuels produced from places like that that could really use the foreign exchange, the currency, the the revenues for development. Talk to us a little bit about the production gap between current planned fossil fuel investment and what's needed to get to 1.5. The recent IPCC report, with all its limitations, basically said, we're probably going to miss 1.5. What are the implications of that? Um, and, And what does it have to do with this issue of the kind of the production gap? Yeah, so I mean, we are producing much more than we should be. So if we wanted to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, countries would need to be decreasing fossil fuel production by 6% a year over this decade. And yet they are planning to increase production 2% a year. So if you, we were on this 1.5 degree pathway, production would be consistent with just um, 15 gigatons of CO2 by 2040. But all these current plans and the projections that come from the current plans would lead to an equivalent of 40, so even above current levels. So, you know, we're saying we know what we need to do and we're doing the opposite, basically. Obviously, climate breakdown is already with us, and particularly in parts of the global south where there often aren't the resources to fund kind of significant mitigation efforts. What does the world look like at 1.5 degrees versus two degrees warming? And what are the implications for different communities and, and different parts of the world of, of both of those uh, those targets? So there's a special report on 1.5 degrees that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change put out in 2018, which goes into you know great detail about why these differences matter. I, I realize that you know, 1.52 doesn't sound like that big of a difference. But, you know, what we see is an increase of some of the things we're already seeing in terms of extreme weather, in terms of heat waves, in terms of droughts, those sorts of things. But what people are really concerned with, and I mean, people are concerned with that, but even more of what's harder to predict is these tipping points where um, systems shift. So it's not like a linear change, you know, from 1.5 up to 2, you could really flip some of these systems. And people are concerned about things like the Amazon no longer being a carbon sink, but being, you know, an emitter. People are concerned with AMOC, this ocean current, and how that could change. So I think in, in terms of what that means for human systems, I mean, we have kind of a preview of some of this already thinking about all the impacts from wildfires to floods to droughts, impacts on food production. And we know that the most vulnerable communities are hit with these impacts. So it's really important that we still try to strive for 1.5 degrees. And this is where this concept of this overshoot has come in. So a lot of scenarios have the world overshooting this temperature target and then 
coming back down to 1.5 using these negative emissions technologies. So a lot of these scenarios will go up to like 1.9 degrees. Um, but we should actually also be striving to avoid that overshoot because some of the things that are lost, like don't come back. <laughs> you know, when you get back down to 1.5, you've still, you know, lost more coral reefs, things like that. Yeah, I mean, this is the point about how, you know, the kind of ecological breakdown that we're seeing at the moment isn't just climate breakdown. It's also a whole bunch of other natural systems like the nitrogen cycle. We're seeing the sixth mass extinction. Why are we not talking about these issues as well when there are so many implications for food production, for, you know, just the way so many of the systems that we rely on work? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some activists and scientists that are, but the climate policy community has just been so focused on these carbon logics, as has the business community. So the emphasis is all about measuring, monitoring, tracking carbon, the regulations and standards that companies are moving towards, um, because they do have actually investor pressure. They have some amount of pressure. But that pressure is more on, you know, are you reporting your emissions? Are you tracking them in your supply chain? And so all the attention's going there rather than greater, you know, ecological breakdown, biodiversity, water, these other things that are also caught up with it and also broader than climate too. And what about resource use? Because, so for example, I had Theoria Frankus on the show a while ago who was talking about how decarbonization is going to rely on resource extraction, particularly from the global south. And obviously this relates to lithium in particular in parts of Latin America and Elon Musk tweeting that the US would coup wherever it liked in order to get access to the resources that it needed to kind of support his ambitions. Is there a way of getting to net zero without, <laughs> to coin a phrase, cooing wherever we want? I mean, <laughs> I think that the resource demands for decarbonization are huge. I mean, Thea would be the expert on this that I would go to, um, as well as some others, and really worth thinking through. But I do think, you know, just because we need these resources doesn't mean we have to be extracting them in unjust ways. So that I don't think that's a given. I think that we know perfectly well better techniques for extraction, better social arrangements for extraction. But yeah, I mean, full decarbonization, there's tremendous material demands, there's tremendous land demands as well for, for solar and wind. And we can't minimize them. We have to prepare people for them because otherwise the backlash will crash our hopes for these decarbonization roadmaps. With all of that in mind, what do you think a just transition looks like? So there's been a lot of good writing on kind of what the pillars of a just transition would be. I'll focus on kind of the one part of it that I address in this book, which is the potential to reverse engineer fossil fuel companies to be carbon removal companies, which may sound wild, especially if, you know, we need to end fossil fuel production, right? But thinking about the different options for what happens to these companies. I mean, you could have them be nationalized. You could have them forms of that that look like more of a buyout that costs the public a lot. But I, I think there's a way in which you could transform a fossil fuel company 
into a carbon management and carbon removal company. And the reason I say that is because a lot of the expertise and techniques for geological carbon sequestration come from the fossil fuel industry. These are techniques they've been using for decades now, and they've been using you know, CO2 for enhanced oil recovery. So in the US, um, we have thousands of miles of pipelines for carbon dioxide. Right now, carbon dioxide is mined from natural domes underground, and then it's piped to, you know, hundreds of miles to oil fields and injected into depleted oil wells to flush out more oil. So that's perverse and terrible, but people know how to do that. They know the engineering. And so these jobs that would be required to put carbon back underground have a very similar skill set to what people working in the fossil fuel industry are doing. So I could see a plan that, you know, has the government acquire, take control of these companies with the intention to sunset them and to have a business model where they are orchestrating putting carbon back underground. So there's some obvious challenges with that plan, you know, feasibility, as well as if the government is controlling these companies, why would they not just keep producing oil? I mean, it's very vulnerable to shifts in regime. It's very vulnerable to continued demands for fossil fuels from people, which we may see if people come to view renewables as unreliable. But I think we should be discussing it. Um, you wrote a bit in your book about the role of the media and um, and policy kind of communities um, in shaping the way that we think and talk about climate breakdown. How does the way we are currently kind of ingesting news media um, and, and the way that climate is being written about uh, exacerbate this problem? Yeah, so I want to put the problem so much on the people producing the content as in the design of the platforms themselves. And I actually think that big tech platforms we have are probably our primary obstacle to climate action at this point, which sounds crazy because, you know, fossil fuel companies are obviously a huge obstacle as are other, you know, structural things and actors. But the thing with the platforms is that um, platforms like YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, they are advertising businesses. They want you know, time on site from each person. They want our attention. They're turning that into a commodity and selling it to advertisers. And these algorithms have figured out that you know, the way to maximize that is to have more emotional, extreme content. So we've had this rise in, you know, what political scientists would call effective polarization, where different groups are more against each other in society, right here in the US, the the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, And there's this extreme level of hostility. And that is tracked with the rise of the platforms. I'm not saying it's the only thing responsible for them. But there's clear ways in which these platforms are raking in billions from the conflict between social groups. So that is obviously a huge obstacle for climate action, because it's not the kind of thing that one party can accomplish. You really need everybody on board with it, because a lot of these techniques, both carbon removal, but more importantly, renewables, are going to be in people's communities, in rural communities specifically, 
in communities that vote for people like Trump. They have to be accepting of them and see the benefits in them. I mean, the problem is that people have felt left out of decision-making around what happens in, you know, where they live in terms of the environment, but also in terms of what sorts of jobs and viable economic futures are there. So, I mean, with these platforms, you know, that are taking advantage of our social discord, I don't see viable climate action happening that's, you know, robust and lasting kind of related to that do you have any ideas about how we could kind of reform those platforms and indeed our media more broadly to support a just transition and also you mentioned there this point about how basically we're going to get people on board with with the just transition more generally and whether or not basically because of those issues you mentioned around kind of you know nimbyism um whether or not the speed with which we need to move on climate breakdown is compatible with deepening democracy, as you know, most on the left, I think, would argue that we need to do, or whether or not actually democracy is kind of going to get in the way. Yeah, to, to your first question about how to reform the platforms, I'm happy that this has been a pretty vibrant discussion, at least here in the US, in the past few weeks, where we had this whistleblower from Facebook uh, testify in Congress, and that brought up a lot of discussion about the right way, you know, is it just kind of tweaks to the algorithm? Are we looking at something more substantial, like using antitrust legislation to break up these platforms into smaller companies? Or does that just make the problem worse because then you have a bunch of smaller companies that need to change rather than forcing one mega company to change? And I don't have a strong position on necessarily the best way to go about this, and I encourage people to read the various arguments for this, but I think it's clear that it's not just kind of like a tweak. You know, the problem isn't disinformation, right? That's that's saying like, you know, it's just some bad apples that need to be weeded out or something. The problem really is in the structure. So I think that what we really need is kind of a public communications infrastructure, like we should, you know, basically the internet took a wrong turn and we, we need to rebuild that. And it's hard to see how we get there from here. I think, you know, we need people to kind of abandon these platforms first, perhaps like the demand from particular users has to be there. Um, but, you know, thinking on, on the scale of a decade or two, I think we could get to uh, possibly a public infrastructure for, for some of these things. In terms of this other really hard question about whether the scale and speed of the transition we need is compatible with democracy, I think that there still is a path forward for climate change that goes along with democracy. Um, and I, I just listened to the episode you had with Jeff Mann uh, a few weeks ago that touched on this too. It's, it's challenging because one of the obstacles we have right now is actually kind of an educational one. I think a lot of people don't understand um, the perils of climate change, the scale of transformation needed, and the, the speed required. And so how do you kind of bring people up to speed on, on all of that in a very short time? I think that though we do have tools to do that. I think that if we had the government 
for example, fund a genuine public engagement campaign around decarbonization that wasn't about education or like a one-way transmission of information, but really involved officials actually listening to people in communities, experts actually listening to people. Because I'm not trying to like imply that the problem is the public. I mean, the problem is that experts have not been in dialogue with the public. And so they're missing the values and concerns that publics have, and they're not putting those into their plans. And so they come up with these technocratic wonky policy proposals that end up not having the public support they need. So can we imagine that the government put a few billion dollars into public engagement and listening sessions and really did the work and partnered with these horrible media platforms to actually use some of that, you know, infrastructure to have dialogues about this stuff. Yeah, I think that's plausible and possible. Why don't we have that? We should be demanding that. So obviously, you know, there's been a lot of talk recently about how the stimulus programs that we're going to see in response to the pandemic um, and just a kind of general change in social attitudes is going to mean that there'll be a big shift away from fossil fuels post-COVID, if there is such a thing as post-COVID. Do you think that we'll see that kind of total social transformation or are we more likely to have a kind of return to normal? Well, unfortunately, what I think we're seeing right now is, um, you know, an, an energy crunch, not feeling it quite the same way in the US, but, you know, watching Europe and China, other places around the world, prices of natural gas are through the roof. And that can and probably will to some degree provoke attacks on renewables, if not, you know, a public shift in sentiments, you know, about renewables. So coming out of the pandemic, I'm not actually very optimistic about transformation related to this new mood of public spending. I think that what's going on in the energy markets when it comes to climate change um, will con confound some of that. I mean, is there not a way that we could use this moment to argue that we need a more stable form of energy production that relies on a kind of multitude of different different renewable sources rather than basically having production where the commodities used are controlled by a small number of states and subject to these massive price fluctuations? Is that an argument that we could actually be making more successfully now? Yeah, if, if you know, I think we should be shouting that from the rooftops, but like, how do we make that convincing to a low-income family that is, you know, just watching their home heating bills double or triple, right? So like, this comes back to the, the platforms and the information channels people have. Moving on now to how we build power, I guess, because none of these shifts are really going to happen uh, on their own. What kind of campaigns do, we, do you think we need to be running to end fossil fuels? I'm interested in what methods that you think have been most successful, uh, either those focused on the kind of electoral arena or more focused on kind of, you know, disruption like Extinction Rebellion and sitting in front of SUVs and, uh, and, those, um, and those kind of more grassroots efforts. Yeah, so my view is probably conditioned by being trained in rural sociology and working in the United States. So I think that there's a few places where we can have um, productive discussions with people in rural communities. 
but I think we have to move away from kind of being centered on what's going on in, in big coastal cities and actually have dialogues. And I think one one place is this concern about big tech, big corporate control. This is a concern that's absolutely shared by pretty much everybody I've spoken to in in the central United States. So I think one point of campaign would be, you know, curbing the power of big tech of Silicon Valley. People are obviously very concerned about big agricultural corporations and, and their influence over um, production. So that's another, you know, arena, right? But that necess- not hasn't necessarily been the focus of the the climate movement or climate professionals. So I think that strategically centering discussion in rural areas around rural concerns and building a language around that. Are you optimistic to see what's going to happen at COP? You know, I think a bunch of us <laughs> don't really have high hopes for this COP. Um, I mean, just in in part because of the concerns around participation and the ability of developing country delegates to participate given the global pandemic. I am also disheartened about, you know, the the prospects with the the current energy shock and how that might affect what people bring to the table. And I'm also very nervous about the infrastructure legislation and the reconciliation bill in the US. So no, not so much with the COP, but you know, I think it's also a mistake to hang too much on what happens in the UN negotiations. Because really, you know, I'm thinking more about like a decade long program that sets up the conditions to phase out fossil fuels, which will actually be a few decades long process. So it's more than just kind of one showy moment. It's about how do we use this decade to build the political power we need to actually control fossil fuel companies and and production. Talk to us a little bit about what's going on in the US at the moment. Um, and Biden's stimulus plan and all all of the changes that are happening to that versus what was promised. Um, Do you think that, you know, we're going to see over the next few months a, you know, massive green transformation of the kind that Biden promised during the campaign? Or are we going to see a lot kind of taken out of that and that becoming much less radical? Well, so originally, I mean, this was a hope for a $3.5 trillion budget plan that includes quite a lot of things beyond climate. Current discussion, you know, today, and it changes kind of from day to day, is compromising between progressive Democrats and other sorts of Democrats at something around $1.9 trillion. There's still s- some things you could do with that, but one of the challenging things is that the centerpiece of this in terms of climate, this clean energy power plan Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, said he didn't want to support that. So then the discussion became that around a carbon tax, which has been a discussion for a long time. It's hard to see him supporting a high enough carbon tax to matter. So, I mean, it's kind of like up in the air where this is going to go. And people are hoping that it might be resolved before the cops so we could actually bring something meaningful to the table. But, you know... Everybody is just kind of watching and waiting to see if they can get their act together and and move. And I'm afraid that if 
there's not something like the clean power, clean electricity power plant in that bill. Um, there's not too much, like it won't be transformational. You know, it'll be kind of tinkering around the margins and there'll be some progress, but not like a, a big leap. Thanks so much, Holly, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. We look forward to uh, reading your book and I would really encourage listeners to go out and get that from Verso. Thank you so much for having me. 